As faculty, we face a trade-off between spending time on teaching and on research activities. In this episode, we explore how engaging in research on teaching and learning can help us become more productive as scholars and as educators, while also improving student learning outcomes. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Vregan Gurung, the Ben J. and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Human Development and Psychology at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, President-elect of the Sci-Chi International Honor Society in Psychology, co-editor of Scholarship of Teaching and Learning in Psychology, co-chair of the American Psychological Association Introductory Psychology Initiative, and the director of the Hub for Intro Psych and Pedagogical Research. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks a lot, Rebecca and John. Our teas today are... I'm drinking Prince of Wales today. All right. I'm drinking ginger tea. Oh, now you're making me want to. (laughs) (laughs) We've invited you here today to talk about research in the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, or SOTL. You've conducted a lot of research on teaching and learning, as well as research within your discipline. In most disciplines, there's been an increase in the journals devoted to teaching and learning and an increase in research and teaching and learning, but it hasn't reached everywhere yet. Subtle research is often not discussed in graduate programs and is sometimes devalued by campus colleagues. Why does that occur? So I think there are multiple reasons why the, and I'm going to start with the devaluing. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what exactly it is. So on one hand, when people say scholarship of teaching and learning, very often, if it's somebody who hasn't really read up on it recently, the sense is, oh, you know, that's research on teaching. That's not as good as your regular research. Now, I think that's a misperception. And once upon a time, and here I mean maybe even 15 years ago, there was some scholarship of teaching and learning that wasn't done very well. And I think people have heard about that in the past. And that's why there's that knee-jerk reaction. Far too often, it's seen as something where it's not as rigorous, perhaps, or it's not done in the same way. And most of that is wrong. What I like to tell folks who say that is, if you think the scholarship of teaching and learning is not rigorous, well, you haven't tried to submit something to a journal recently. I co-edit a journal on the scholarship of teaching and learning in psychology, and I can actually see some people submit poor work, and I send it right back. I do the classic desk rejection, and I say, look, this is just not good enough. So my favorite tip for how do you write Scholarship of Teaching Journal is very simple, just like you write anything else. There's a lot of baggage, but I think that, as you mentioned, alluded to, John, it has changed more recently. And I think part of what you notice now, what I've been seeing, is that this kind of work, this kind of examination is being called different things. For example, a term that I'm hearing more and more often is DBER, Disciplinary-Based Educational Research. And I'm hearing this come out of medical schools and engineering schools and social work schools and many professional programs where they're doing deeper, which is essentially what the scholarship of teaching and learning is. So 
I think because of that baggage with the term, people are calling it different things, but in general, the work is getting much more rigorous. Excellent. And if changing the name is sufficient to do that, it's a valuable step. I think that's why when I talk about it, I like to talk about it as, do you want to know if your students are learning? Do you want to know if your teaching is effective? Well, then you should do some research on it. You can call it what you want. I started really calling it pedagogical research because that's what it was, but it's truly a rose by any name. And that's something that Carl Wyman has emphasized. Absolutely. Yep. In the sciences, you test hypotheses, and there's no reason we couldn't do the same thing in our teaching. Exactly. And that's starting to happen, or it's happening more and more. In some disciplines, the scholarship of teaching and learning is not accepted as being part of their tenure and promotion file, for example. What would you recommend faculty do in a department like that if they really want to get started in SOTL? Well, so Rick, let me take you a half step back. Yeah. When you say in some disciplines, it isn't as accepted. What has surprised me is that most disciplines have actually been doing the scholarship of teaching and learning and publishing it for the longest time. If you take a look at chemistry, it goes back, gosh, 70 years or so. Almost every discipline out there has a journal that publishes the scholarship of teaching and learning. But, and here's the big but, most of us in our normal training never run into it. So I'll take my own case. In psychology, the Teaching of Psychology Journal has been around for 46 years. Yet, all through grad school, all through my postdoc, I never even knew the journal existed. Why? Because the programs that I went through weren't focused on teaching. The individuals, wonderful as they may be, who I work with, didn't do that kind of work, so they didn't know about it. So I think that's a really important fine-tune there. There is a journal in almost every discipline, almost every discipline, for the scholarship of teaching and learning. So it's just a question of discovering it. It's a question of finding it. Now, that said, where can they start? I think I can answer your question from a conceptual level and from a practical level. So I'll start with the practical. The easiest place to start, there are lots of compilations of how to do it. For example, I think both of you have my website. On my website, I have a simple tab called SOTL. On that tab is a list of places to get going. I've, I've organized it so that there's a brief introduction to SOTL. There are journals, there are resources, there are little handouts. So if a faculty member has even 10 minutes, go to my website, hit SOTL, scroll through. That's the more practical, that's the easiest way to get started. From a conceptual standpoint, it really starts with the question, what aspect of your teaching or your student learning are you curious about? John, I know you do some work in large class instruction and economics. Why is this assignment not working? Can I get my students to remember certain concepts better? If I change how I present information, it starts with a question. And you don't have to read anything. You don't have to look at any manual. If you look at your class and you go, hmm, why isn't this working? Or why isn't that working? That's where it begins. And from there, you follow the same route that we always do. Go look at what's been published in it. Fine-tune your question. Design. Think about what you want to change and so on and so forth. I think it'll help if I give you my working definition of the scholarship of teaching and learning. And when I think about it, I think of SOTL as encompassing those theoretical underpinnings of how we learn. And most specifically, I see it as the intentional and systematic modifications of pedagogy. And here's the important part, the assessment of the resulting changes in learning. So that's the key. You intentionally, you systematically modify what you're doing 
and then you measure whether it worked or not. That's it. I can see that nonchalantly. (laughs) There's a technique, there's a robustness to it. But at the heart, where do you start? You start by asking the question. I think one of the things that I hear you saying is not much different than someone has a really reflective teaching practice. They're doing it, but not in that systematic way. Yeah, absolutely right. There's a term called scholarly teaching. And in this kind of literature, there's a distinction made between scholarly teaching and the scholarship of teaching and learning. And all the distinction is, is that scholarly teacher is reflecting on their work. And then you're right, you're absolutely right, making those intentional systematic changes. That's scholarly teaching. When it becomes the scholarship of teaching and learning is when you present it or you publish it, uh, preferably through peer-reviewed ways. But you're absolutely right. At the heart of it, it's scholarly teaching. It's reflective, intentional, systematic changes. One of the barriers that people who are considering doing research in the scholarship of teaching and learning is going through IRB approval. And in many disciplines, that's something they haven't experienced before. It's common in psychology. It's less common in economics and perhaps in art. It doesn't exist in design. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure. Every university has an institutional review board. And essentially what that board does is it's in place to make sure that any research that's being done isn't harmful. Now, normally when we think about harmful, we think about a drug or a food substance being tested. But here it just means any research that's being done. And so when you do the scholarship of teaching and learning or when you're examining your classes, yes, you could just look at your exams and see if exam scores are changing. But if you do want to publish that, if you do want to share that, you really should go through Institutional Review Board review. Now, the key thing here, it does sound like this whole new world, and it is, but at the heart of it is a very simple process. Now, there are three levels of review, and I think knowing about the levels helps. For example, the first level is called an exempt review. The next level is called an expedited review, and the third level is called a full board review. I don't think I've run into scholarship of teaching and learning that has gone through a full board review because we're not doing things that are more than minimum level of stress. Now, when you say, hey, hang on, I didn't know there was stress involved. Well, anytime you ask anybody to fill out a survey, there's a minimal level of stress. And when you're asking your students to reflect on their learning, well, that's a minimum level of stress. Every university has its own procedures. SUNY Oswego probably has a form online. It's short form. You're basically telling this board what you plan on doing, what you plan on doing with the information. And most importantly, in these kind of cases, you are letting the board know whether or not students will be put under duress. What the IRB is going to look for is, are you the instructor in some way forcing your students to do things that normally wouldn't be done in the normal course of the educational process? But at the heart of it, all you're doing is you're sharing with this board whether or not you can do it. And Most scholarship of teaching and learning is at that exempt level. That exempt level essentially translates to exempt from further review. It doesn't mean exempt from being reviewed. It just means this is mundane and low stress enough that it's exempt from further review. Now, that second level expedited, if you do want to measure or keep track of names, if you want to look at how certain names relate to scores down the line, and that's actually some really key research. Well, that's expedited review. Now, even there, it's reviewed by one person. Both the expedited and the exempt review are reviewed by one person, often the chair. It often takes no longer than a week. And by doing that, you just know that all your T's are crossed and your 
I's are dotted. And it's the ethical thing to do. So whenever people say, oh, this is really mundane, I'm not really doing much more than just measuring student learning, I still say if there's any chance you want to present it or publish it, make sure you go through the IRB. And many journals will require evidence of completion of the IRB process. Oh, absolutely. The moment you want to publish it, you have to sign off saying that you've got IRB review. We do use an expedited review process on our campus. We're recording this in late October, but just yesterday I read that Rice University has introduced a streamlined expedited review process for IRB. And apparently that's something that's been happening at more and more campuses. Are you familiar with that? You know, not as much because right now there's so much up in the air with the IRB because national guidelines are changing. They were supposed to have changed in January, then it was moved to July. The latest I heard is it's moved to next January. So for the most part, actual regulations are changing. Even on our own campus, we switched from one form of human subjects training to another form, but the so-called short-form expedited process will definitely help. That said, even the regular expedited, it's a very easy process. And I think the neat thing about this, and I tell students this when I'm teaching research methods too, as the instructor or the researcher, just going through that IRB form really reminds you of some key things that you may have otherwise forgotten about. So, yes. Can you talk a little bit about your own research to give people an overview of what project might look like from the beginning to the end? Sure. What really got me interested in this is I teach large introductory psychology classes. The class is 250 individuals. And I was struck by how when publisher reps come into my office and try to convince me to adopt one book over the other, they would talk about the pedagogical aids in the textbook. Oh, look, our book has this and our book has that. And that really got me started studying textbooks and how students use textbooks. So the umbrella under which I do research is student studying. What's the optimal way for students to study? And I use both a social psychology and a cognitive psychology lens or approach to it. And it really started with looking at how they use textbook pedagogical aids. So for example, in one of my really first studies, I measured which of the different aids in a textbook the student uses. And then I used their usage to predict their exam scores. Now, what I found, and this is what really surprised me and got me doing this even more is that even though students were using and focusing on key terms a lot, now mind you, I'll take a half step back, you may not be surprised to know that students use bold terms, they use italics, that's what they focus a lot on. But students in my study also said that they use key terms a lot. Now, if you're studying key terms, that should be good. If you're making flashcards and studying those key terms, that should be good. But what I found is that the more students use key terms, the worse their exam scores. There was this negative correlation, and that's completely counterintuitive. Why would it go the opposite direction? So I dug into some more, and I realized that students spend so much time on key terms or so much time on flashcards that they're not studying in any other way. So even though they're using flashcards, they're so intent on memorizing and surface-level processing that they're not doing deeper-level processing. So That was some years ago, and I've been building on that, trying to unpack how students study. My most recent study that's actually under review right now, uh, a colleague, Kate Burns, and I took two of the most recommended cognitive psychology study techniques, which is repeated practice or testing yourself frequently and spacing out your practice or spacing out your studying. And we took both of these and across nine different campuses, divided up classes such that 
the students in those classes were either using high or low levels of each of these. So in one study across multiple campuses, we tested, is there a mean effect of one of these types of studying or is there an interaction? And what we found is that there is an interaction and the critical component seems to be spacing out your studying. Not so much even repeating your studying, but really spacing out your studying. And I think what's interesting here is the reason this is happening is the students who said that they were testing themselves repeatedly, that sounds great. And if you're a cognitive psychologist, you say, hey, the lab says repeat testing is great. The problem is in the classroom, a lot of students who were repeatedly testing themselves we're repeatedly testing themselves during a really short period of time. Right. I've seen that myself. And I think that's the issue. But because we had both these factors in the study, we could actually tease that out. So that's the kind of work that I do is take a look at what the cognitive lab says is important. Let's see how it works in the actual classroom. Now, was this a controlled experiment? Or was this based on the student's behavior? So yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I love this study because of a number of reasons. Number one, we tested two different techniques in the same thing. Number two, we did it at multiple institutions. So it's not just my classroom. A lot of SOTL is one class. So here we went beyond to try and generalize. But to get to your question, we actually used a true experimental design. So we recruited these different campuses and we assigned a classroom. So for example, I'd say, hey, John, thanks for taking part if you could have your students do high repetition and high spacing. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for taking part. Could you have your students do high repetition and low spacing? And that's how we spread it out. We had about two campuses in each of these cells. That's the true experiment on paper. To get to the other part of what you said, in reality, that's not exactly what students always did. And you know, students, we can tell them to do something, but a whole bunch of things gets in the way. Fortunately, of course, we measured self-reports of what students said they actually did. And it was relatively close to the study cells, but even though it varied a little bit, we could still control for it. So yes, it was close to a controlled study as much as you can control something in the real world across nine campuses. That brings us to the general question of how you construct controls. Suppose that you make a change in your class. How do you get the counterfactual? Right. What would be some examples for people designing an experiment? The word control, especially in research, has the true connotation of the word control group. And that's controlling for factors is different from having a control group. Optimally, we'd love a control group. The problem with a control group is that it means no treatment. So very often, a true control group means this group of students is not getting something. From a philosophical and an ethical standpoint, I don't like the notion of one group not getting something. So the word I like to use is comparison group. So your question still holds, but what's the comparison group? I think here's where, if you're fortunate enough to teach multiple sections, well, one of the sections can be the comparison group. If you're not fortunate enough to have multiple sections, you compare the students this semester with the students the last semester when you weren't doing that new funky innovation. So there are a bunch of different ways to get at the comparison group, but you're absolutely right. Having a comparison group is important. Most commonly in scholarship of teaching and learning, the comparison is the students before that intervention. So it's a classic pre and post measure. I'll give you this quiz before I've introduced the material. I give you an equivalent quiz after. Let's see if there are changes in learning. And that's the most common comparison. You're comparing them with them before, but optimally, again, you want a different section. You want a group of students a different semester or so on and so on. 
And it's best if you have some other controls Absolutely. for student ability and characteristics. You nailed one of the key. My two favorite are effort and ability. As much as possible, measure their GPA. If they're first-year students, measure their high school ACT scores or their high school GPA. And then you have to measure ability. And I think those two are probably the usual suspects for control. And again, a lot of SOTL doesn't do that, and it should. I think one thing that comes up a lot for me and maybe some others who are in disciplines maybe more similar to my own is that the kind of research that we do is not this kind of research generally, but we're really interested in what's happening in our classrooms. So for faculty who might be in the arts or some other area where we're doing really different kinds of research, right. how would you recommend being able to partner or do this kind of work right. without that background? And I think implicit in your question is, do I need to have a certain methodological tool bag? And I remember I was at a conference once and somebody accosted me and said, hey, is it true that you have to be a social scientist to do this work? And the answer is no. And I wrote a pretty funky essay called Get Foxy, which is how social scientists can benefit from the methodologies of the humanists and vice versa. But you're right. You can collaborate if you need to do that kind of work. But there are a lot of questions even within your discipline. And when I think about SOTL, I think about answering questions about teaching and learning with the tools of your discipline. Now, I'll give you an example. A good friend of mine was in art and her project or something that she wanted to dig into was to improve student critiques in an art class. Give your students learning how to do art. And I think it was drawing or jewelry making. And across the course of the semester, everybody had to present their work and then critique each other's work. And those critiques, they just didn't have the teeth that she wanted them to. So she was giving them skills on how to do it. So here's a case of how did she know whether or not the critiquing tools were increasing. Well, she came up with a simple rubric and to score them against and looked if the scores changed. Now, you may say, well, we very often in the arts and theater, you don't get skills to do that, which is true, but that's where I think collaboration comes in. And that's why what's really neat about scholarship of teaching and learning is very often there are cross collaborations. I have a historian on my campus who wanted to change the quality of his essays and he, uh, David Bolker, changed how he was teaching and wanted to see it roll out and have students on their essays use themes in a different way. Well, he compared, and John, this goes back to your point, he compared essays from before the change with essays from after the change, counted up the number of themes students had, and then, Rebecca, to your point, went over to my colleague in psychology and said, hey, can you tell me if this is statistically different? So he didn't even bother with doing the stats. He just said, hey, look, I don't need to do the stats. But you can in a click and literally within minutes, my colleague in psychology had done the stats for him. And I think that's the kind of stuff that can happen to truly get at those answers. If you go, you know, I don't know how to do that. But you'd be surprised the basic skills for SOTL can give you enough to test questions pretty well. I think John and I have also found in the teaching center that it's really exciting when faculty from different disciplines start talking about their research when they're looking at learning. Because there's things that we can learn from each other. And the more that we're talking across disciplines can be really valuable as well. Right. And I think this is where reading the rich literature that exists in your discipline or even across disciplines on scholarship and teaching and learning really gives you the leg up. Because I find now when I do workshops and somebody says, you know, I've got this question, I don't know how to start. More often than not, it'll remind me of a study that I can say, hey, here's what you can do. And it's just because I read a lot and I've got all of that in my head and I just match to that question. And it's pretty easy. I mean, very rarely do we have to invent something from scratch. 
we go, hey, yeah, you know what? Here's the study that's pretty close to the question you have. Let's use that methodology. So how do we build a culture of the scholarship of teaching and learning with departments who might have faculty who are resistant to the idea of their colleagues spending their time doing that? How do we start changing minds and really building a culture that embraces the idea of the scholarship of teaching and learning? Well, I think you've got to attack it from two different levels. You definitely want a champion in the administration who is educated enough about the scholarship of teaching and learning and how it can be done robustly. If you can convince somebody of its worth, and if you go, how do you do that? Well, that's where you need to make sure you have at your fingertips as a teaching and learning center, the exemplars of really robust work. And I think if you have that really robust work at your fingertips, that's definitely a key place to start. One of my favorite examples along those lines of trying to convince, especially administrators, about the worth of scholarship of teaching and learning, I recommend a 2011 publication by Hutchings, Huber, and Ciccone. It's called The Scholarship of Teaching and Learning Reconsidered. And this 2011 publication is a great collection. It does your homework for you. That one book pulls together evidence for why scholarship of teaching and learning helps students, helps faculty, helps institutions. So that's where the top down, get your administrators to check that book out and go, oh yeah, look, there is actually some good research. Coming at it from the other angle, I know this for a fact, there are people on your campus doing some of that work, but often they may be isolated. They may be a small group. You want to strengthen them so that they can spread that through their circles. And that's really how it starts. On my campus, when Scott was the dean at Green Bay, we did a lot to develop scholarship for teaching and learning through the teaching center. There was one year where we had 14 faculty who got together every month and talked about their projects. Now, you may say, well, that's 14 and you had 160 faculty. But you know what? You do 10 or 14 every year and colleagues see the value of the work those 10 or 14 are doing. Pretty soon, you're going to have a culture where people recognize it more and appreciate it more. So I think that's how it goes. You put your efforts on those people who are already doing it to make them stronger, and that's going to spill over, and pretty soon you're going to win over, folks. We've generally had support from the upper administration, and there's often been a lot of faculty who are new interested in doing it. It's usually the promotions and tenure committees that have served as a barrier in some departments, but we'll work on that, and we need to keep working on that. Well, just along those lines, on our campus, we felt so strongly about the scholarship of teaching and learning that the faculty senate actually passed a resolution recognizing the importance of scholarship and teaching and learning. Now, again, it still gave department chairs some leeway, but at least faculty voted on it as something that the university values. And that goes a really long way to having especially junior faculty say, you know, I can do this. Certainly makes faculty, especially junior faculty, feel supported when the senate is saying, yes, we believe in this. And it's not just one person saying we don't. Absolutely. And there'll be naysayers. We started off this conversation with, there are people out there who think it's not good enough. And there are people out there, but I've had conversations with such people on my campus where sharing some information, sharing things about how it's done goes a long way towards changing minds. In my department, it's helped that I've been the chair of our search committee for a few decades now. We've generally hired people who are interested in this, but that's not the case in all of our departments yet. But we're hoping that'll change. For those who have small classes, or may not be interested in doing research in their own classes, one other option is meta-analysis. Could you talk a little bit about that? So meta-analysis, where one study is taking a look at a lot of different studies, there is the mother of all meta-analyses, 
one that we should talk about because I think the interested person can run to it. John Hattie, now at the University of Melbourne, did a meta-analysis where actually he did a meta-meta-analysis, <laughs> took 900 meta-analyses and then synthesized the data from those 900 studies that had already synthesized data. And the reason I like talking about that is the sample size, when you take all those 900 meta-analyses, is a quarter of a billion with a B. That's a lot of data points. That's a lot of students. And what's neat about meta-analyses is that instead of just being one study at one place, it's now multiple studies over multiple contexts. And if you can find an effect over multiple contexts, that's really saying something because a lot of single studies are so keyed into the local context of where that place is that if you run into a meta-analysis, so even if anybody listening pulls up an educational journal or an SOTL journal and sees meta-analysis in the title, I would spend more time reading that one because it's going to be more likely to generalize from that. So I think it's statistical and methodological advances now mean that there are more meta-analyses around and more meta-meta-analyses around as well. <laughs> As an advocate for the scholarship of teaching and learning, where do you hope the scholarship of teaching and learning goes in the next five years? Honestly, I think it should be a part of every teacher's repertoire. When I think about a model teacher, and it's not just when I think about it, I've published on evidence-based college and university teaching. And when my co-authors and I looked at all the evidence out there and what makes a successful university teacher, one of those components, and we found six, I mean, it wasn't just student evaluations. No, it was your syllabi. It was your course design. But one big element was doing the scholarship of teaching and learning. And to answer your question, I think if in five years from now, we can see it be part of teacher training to look at your class with that intentional systematic lens, I think that's where the field needs to get to. At the very least, it would get people to start considering evidence-based teaching practices instead of just replicating whatever was done to them in graduate school. Absolutely. People would be surprised at how much good SOTL there is out there. And I always like sending folks to the Kennesaw State Center for Teaching and Learning, where they have a list of journals in SOTL in essentially every field. You will scroll through that list for pages, and it is just mind-boggling to realize that wow, SOTL has been going on for a very long time. And Rebecca, you mentioned art and performance arts and theater and music. Not as much, but even there, there is a fair amount. And I think it's just a question of getting folks, making those resources more available to individuals. And that's why whenever I interact with teaching and learning centers, I have a short list of key resources to look at. And again, that's on my SOTL link. But even that small list is an eye-opener to most people who never knew this existed. And I think once they realize it's there, they'll start seeing it everywhere. And once you start doing it, it really energizes you. For those of us who've been teaching for 20 plus years, to look at our classes with that new eye of how can I change something? How can I make it better? And then seeing the positive effects of those changes, that's invigorating. I'm energized after having this conversation. It is good stuff. Yeah. I just got back from a three-day conference and all we did was sit around and talk about cool SOTL. And you're right. We came back and sitting on the plane, I was texting people with study ideas to collaborate on. It was that exciting. The more you talk about it, collaborate, the more it happens. There you go. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? You know, I think I like getting the bang for my buck. And you mentioned this in the intro. Right now, I'm working on the American Psych Association's Introductory Psychology Initiative. And what's next is basically two years of really focusing on 
the introductory psychology course. It's taken by close to 1.5 million students a year. And I'd like to make sure we can make that course the best learning experience for our students as possible. So that's where my energy is going to be for the next little bit. That's a big task and it's very useful one. And definitely worthwhile. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. It's been eye-opening and exciting, energizing. I can't wait to look through some of the resources. You know, if there's anything else that you'd like, get in touch. And I welcome anybody listening to get in touch as well. Thank you. And we'll share links to the resources you've mentioned in the show notes. Sounds good. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Brittany Jones, Gabriella Perez, Joseph Santorelli Hansen, and Dante Perez. 